0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory, welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, ghouls of the audience. It is Friday the 13th. I am one of your unlucky, cursed co-ghosts. I am Ashley Darrow, joined as always by John, aka the Liquor Guy. How's it going,
1: John? You know, I'm so excited to be back for another season, working as a uh, a camp counselor here at the podcasting compound. Um, <laughs> you know, been working up. Uh, Working out on the West Coast for a while, so it's nice to be nice to be here now. um Of course, we're recording this five years to the day after that podcast that you listened to mysteriously went off the air. Um, some say that if you listen to the dead air at the end of an episode, you'll hear the shouts of a mysterious old podcast producer <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, honestly, I've, I've been doing really well for myself lately. Like the, the, the kind of like town mad crier. I've been doing great. Every time a new group of teens comes into town, I warn them to stay away from the spooky old podcasting camp factory, factory camp, camp, camp factory. The movie, the movies are all blurring together. Oh no, I'm getting sucked back into the film void. Ah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you you can notice, but it's been a long October for us. here. I'm so glad you said long October
0: and not long Halloween because that would all of a sudden invoke a series of animated films we're
1: never going to talk about. <laughs> but now, every time, every time either one of us goes, we're never going to talk about this. Like monkey paw curls. The the fi- yeah, the monkey paw curls, <laughs> and, oh. and we find ourselves doomed. <laughs>
0: saw 10 all i'm gonna say is saw 10 oh listeners the saw 10 episode is coming don't you worry but we're, we're starting a new horror vanguard tradition we love our ritual here in horror vanguard and we decided that every friday the 13th we are going to record an episode on friday the 13th as a way to complete the entire friday the 13th series which if my reading of the coming years farmer's almanac holds true we'll finish this one out in about six years I I don't know if it's just the mood that I'm in, but there's something so deeply bleak about that <laughs> sentence. Oh, this is going to be great. Uh, and, this, and this is and this is assuming Green doesn't do once Green wraps the Exorcist trilogy, he doesn't decide to move on to Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, the true unstoppable shape
1: of horror cinema. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm a Friday the Thirteenth believer. I think you're maybe a Friday the Thirteenth deceiver. Um, but um, <laughs> so yeah, listeners enjoy this. Uh, you'll, you'll get your next episode uh, sometime midway through next year. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, it's it's sort of a long term project. It's a long term project. Um, well, I I I can think of no better better way to celebrate the uh, the scariest of all days. Uh, that is Friday the Thirteenth. By asking asking you, Ash, if you would Ah. mind explaining to 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 me to all the other calendar watchers out there, um, what today's movie is about.
0: Any theoretically-oriented conversation about the figure of Jason Voorhees in horror cinema will inexorably evoke discourses of phallic symbolism, edible complexes, and discrete taxonomies of metaphoric violence. The relative symbolic simplicity of Friday the 13th, when compared to, say, the more metaphorically rich Halloween movies, or the much more complex world of Jiali slashers, draws it into the orbit of overanalyzed simplistic reduction. Jason is the patriarchy, with all of his flaws and violent insecurities. The knife knife is an extension of his phallus. His victims are stock actors in a play of heteronormative libidinal conventions. Can Friday the 13th exist beyond these boundaries, or, like so many period political commentaries whose nuances are now lost to popular explication, is the slasher bound to a narrow band of human political context? Jason is either the most simplistic, and thereby uninteresting, or the most overlooked, and thereby in need of desperate, critical appraisal of all slashers. Will we only have the space to bat back and forth discourses of patrocentristic violence, or is there a way beyond a path so well-traveled it's now got a parking lot and multiple Starbucks? Our Friday the 13th episodes will appear like a ritual with strange motions. Once every Friday the 13th, we will endeavor to move this slasher beyond its trite moorings. What we seek here is not a refinement of the precepts that Carol Clover set out in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, nor their negation. We blaze out for new discourse with the hope of dissolving self-imposed boundaries in the discussion of Friday the 13th films. This is the acid slasher. Our psychogenic machete is here to cleave new pathways through a mind that feels its thoughts as totally fixed and naturally given. Join us as we discuss Friday the 13th, Part 2. And Excellent. Yes, in...
1: Indeed. I like giving that a peppy part two um, there at the end, part two. Yeah, that was nice. That was nice. Um, there's, I mean, there's a long way to go, and there's many a Friday thirteenth that we're gonna have to cover. Um, Six, but years. so I, th- I, we could do with the pep. We could do with the pep. I think.
0: Yeah. Oh no, I, I, I totally agree. We, we need to. This is an upbeat film when you think about it in ways that I haven't fully articulated.
1: Uh, uh, in a way, uh, yes, but this is also a film that exists mostly because it has to yeah let's 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 dig in let's start um, our
0: formalism zone by digging into how we got Friday the 13th part 2
1: so okay so the original director of Friday the 13th uh, leaves um and from what i've been able to find in retrospect doesn't seem particularly enamored with the, the, the films and not really all that you know fond of the fond of the work that they did um tom savini leaves um doesn't return to do the makeup effects this time around um but there were a couple of things that uh, happened it gets new it gets a new dist- uh, distributor and the first one made a lot of money so at the tail end of the 70s and into the 80s what that meant was a sequel kind of had to happen it was the thing that's that's kind of most notable, um, I think, about the Friday the Thirteenth films is that because because of their simplicity, they they basically and they're very explicit about this. They basically function as almost a kind of pure distilled commodity cinema. Mm-hmm. The last one made money. We've got to do <laughs> it again. And so and so, if there is a compulsive repetition in them, I don't think it has much to do really with, what's the, this is a very basic kind of like Deleuze-Guatarian point, right? There's one economy. There's only one. There is no, there is no real distinction between the, the, the libidinal, Oedipal, fetishistic nightmare of this film's text and the necessary compulsion to constantly generate the new commodity for exchange upon uh, capitalist market, right? So th- this film kind of had to exist. It feels inevitable.
0: I I I completely I completely agree and what we find I think in Friday the 13th that makes it this, this film I find it be bizarrely compelling. Halloween 2, the direct sequel to Halloween is incredibly forgettable. It's barely a movie. I I maybe this is a hot take, maybe I'm taking a stance here, but Friday the 13th part 2 is it's a better necessary cash-in follow-up insofar as a necessary cash-in follow-up forced by the studio has to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, and I think that's 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 honestly the best way of approaching something, which is, um, it's it's this is kind of workmanlike. It's really the story ended at the end <laughs> of the last one, <laughs> so we have to and it's this where it gets into very psychoanalytic and kind of libidinal territory so you actually have to return to the to the site of the great parental trauma um you kind of have to because there's nowhere else to go um at least not this early into the franchise um and yeah we'll we'll get into the the discourse of the sexual politics and the uh the the deeply freudian nightmare of this of this movie um but yeah, what else do you want to kind of pick up on on, on the formal level?
0: Well, so to tie this into Halloween too, I, I just want to say that uh, Friday the 13th was also conceived of being a, as an anthology series. Halloween centered around the titular holiday. Friday the 13th centered around one of the unlucky days of the calendar year. Um, th- this was originally like the Jason Voorhees story was over. The next, Hol- or the next Friday the 13th movie would have been another retelling of a popular unlucky mythology. But studio executives don't like New. New is hard to market. New doesn't have an established audience. So this, this is an attempt to continue to make that established audience. And what I find to be interesting here is that we kind of, we have a different slasher killer, right? It's no longer Pamela Voorhees. You know, Jason uh, not only exists in this film, but he's real, right? He's not just some kind of like, quasi real dream creature although we'll we'll get into the dream the dream framing in just a second here I found that to be pretty interesting as well so there's there is uh, there's like some struggle happening in this film right it is this kind of cash-in but at the same time like I think a more crash cash-in would have just brought back Pamela Voorhees it would have just continued the same kind of like repetition instead of doing what this movie is doing and that's kind of like iterating within this like echoic chamber
1: of capital yeah absolutely but like in fairness in fairness like the opening like what is it 12 to 15 minutes are exactly that (laughs) yeah okay okay this
0: might get a little discoursey but let's let us let us bite into that for a second because that stuff usually i hate that usually nothing nothing infuriates me more than a sequel starting with 15 minutes of footage from the previous film (laughs) because that's very obviously like we don't want to spend money. We couldn't get this thing to run time. I think Friday the 13th 2 is only 86 minutes long. It's not even feature length. And that's with a boatload of footage from the previous movie. But what I do kind of like about that in a weird way is so the Friday, the first Friday the 13th ends with this kind of like quasi dream sequence. Is it real? Is it not question? Right. Jason Voorhees attacks our lone survivor in a boat. But then the police didn't see a little boy. No one else found this this little boy living in the lake. You know, you know, Jason Voorhees died. You know, years and years and years back when he was just a kid. No one. This is a mystery. So we're left with this kind of cliffhanger, and we kind of pick up from that same spot. It has a little bit of resonance that I enjoy, even though I, I it, it almost succeeds in spite of what it is yeah which is a shameless cash brand. yeah
1: well i don't i think it succeeds because it is that right but and in a way in a oh, way it just kind of needs to um it kind of needs to go back to uh uh it needs to go back to its source material right just to, on, a, on the level of mm-hmm. the practical but also just kind of thinking aloud here obviously this changes as we go further into the franchise but like essentially Jason is an empty signifier. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh Jason in this film uh has a costume and mask that is essentially lifted entirely out of another film. Um like <laughs> it's it's true, right? Because is there is there the iconic uh knife and the hockey mask? No, that doesn't exist. Um so he becomes this kind of like empty signifier, this sort of like um floating mediator that is is exists only for us to kind of like restage the same thing that we just saw right there's this sort of like uh there's there's a there's an almost lack of permanence to it there's there's one moment there's one moment of like what i think is genuine sincerity in this film which is not just repeating what happened in the previous film Um, maybe two moments um and they both revolve around the character of ginny who is easily the most interesting thing of this film um but yeah there's there's something like you know freddy is a kind of like concrete object michael is uh again at the beginning of the franchise very much a concrete physical object it's very noticeable it's very noticeable that carpenter didn't like rob zombie's halloween uh films for for one very specific reason which was that michael was too big right it didn't seem real um but like Jason in this is kind of like almost like a, a kind of ghost. Like, a, he is he's he's the, the, the simulacra of the slasher killer, right? He's just he's the kind of like the, the hollow shell that's kind of moved around the stage, almost like a kind of che- directorial chess piece.
0: I, I, re- I really like that. And to, and to kind of build off of the point that you're making, like, th- this whole film is a creature of necessity. In in a very weird way. The the costume designer, when she was designing uh Jason's uh mask for this film, uh commented that, like, okay, what would what would he have access to? Living in the woods, scavenging from this campsite, a burlap sack. He'd have a burlap sack on his head. Because what else what else would he have? He's not gonna he's not going to Walmart to buy a hockey mask, you know, as as we'll see in later films where he gains access to more toys. And so I think that like even Jason Voorhees himself as a slasher embodies that kind of like crude necessity, you know, like the, the, beginning of this movie is scavenged footage out of crude necessity. We're kind of rehashing a lot of Jason Voorhees territory and action out of crude necessity, you know? And like the, the innovation that we make is like in spite of like Halloween two does not really like meaningfully do anything for the Halloween franchise. It's like a non film. You know, Friday the 13th is here repeating all of the same kind of like, I don't know, formulaic steps as the original. But it's like deviating ever so slightly. It's giving us a few new characters and some really interesting stuff in spite of itself.
1: Yeah. And it's like I, when I say that, that, like, this is kind of like, like, quite hollow i don't i don't i don't really mean that as a as a in a kind of derogatory sense right because that presupposes a sort of authenticity to art which is not really the argument i'm trying to make which is like Mm -hmm. on the on the economic level uh it had to be made uh narratively it goes through exactly the same gestures as the previous one did and to me what this suggests is a kind of broader point of ideological critique about the nature of capitalism and culture under capitalism more generally which is that um there's this kind of like disavowal of our own ideological complicity where we go well we know really that what we're doing when we go up when you know we kind of live in this world as we're but we we kind of have to do this anyway so we 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 we're always already all of us kind of compulsively repeating uh in in a way that we can't seem to kind of break ourselves out of and so when i say when i say these things i'm not trying to like say it kind of like pass a value judgment but in the like in the beginning of the 80s this is a film that kind of reveals the essential ideological deadlock of capitalism that we are still kind of trying to work through post-2008 right oh yeah 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 and and i think like
0: like, I, i totally agree with that and i think my my point isn't some like i'm not trying to there's nothing to redeem here It's, you know, like, like the, the idea that we like redeem art, I I think is a bit misguided, you know, like it's more of like, these are raw materials. What, what can we do with them? The whole, the whole point I'm trying to like craft with the acid slasher thing is like, okay, we've got this, like the, the, one of the, one of the unique quirks of the Friday the 13th movies is that they are like much more crass about being like, okay, how can we make a quick buck? You know, like the the Halloween movies under Mustafa Akkad and later artists and Carpenter himself, like th- those those movies are. That's a those are those are the thinking ghouls slasher. Uh, fr- Friday the Thirteenth is the popcorn slasher, if you'll if you'll pardon the parlance. And like, I think yeah, you, you know, like I don't know. I'm just I'm rehashing myself at this point, but like, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun. I think when we get into the old discourse zone.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think so. Um. Yeah, I think. How do you feel about Mario Bava? Uh, I I love him almost as much as this film's director did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say that you love him almost as much as you love
0: Lamberto Bava.
1: Uh, this, the, I mean, this this is it's quite clearly Bava is the the influence, right? Um, and I do think it's interesting that, in a sense. This is this is not American giallo, right? Giallo is... No. But this is... I kind of think that there is a better version or a kind of more complete version of this, which did develop the aesthetics of, like, an American giallo. Because this is just, like, copying a few shots, copying a couple of kills from Barbara, um, and but doesn't experiment with the form in the way that Italian giallo did, right? Because Italian giallo in this film... On on the surface, at least, are not entirely dissimilar. You have a you have a masked slash oh, yeah. slasher killer. You have very low budgets. You have very high returns. You have practical effects. But I think the thing that this misses, um, I would be really interested to be to kind of think about what the what would what would the American equivalent like in terms of an aesthetic or a, or a mode of cinema. Be to the italian giallo and i think this 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 could have been that right if they'd gone further if they'd gone really far with this
0: oh yeah and, and thinking about that now just off the top of my head like what would american giallo look like? like the only thing i can think of is like uh, maybe some late teen exploitation and black exploitation cinema
1: yeah i i think exploitation is probably the probably the film form that gets it like, that the crafts a distinctly American cinema aesthetic, but with the same kind of, like, social and political intensity um, mm-hmm. that Giallo came came close to. In terms of, like, mainstream horror, probably the closest that you could really say is something like um, Evil Dead. Yeah, I,
0: w- I would say Evil Dead and, like, I, I don't know, like, you could hear the echo of it in Carpenter or maybe that's
1: maybe that's it playing in Reverse. Yeah, I think you know? Carpenter. Carpenter's maybe a little too like um, emotionally restrained, especially in the first Halloween. Right, those classic the panaglide camera movements. It's it's there's quite this kind of a um, a coldness to it, um, and it it doesn't get it's psychologically weird enough. Uh, and
0: I think, well, I think uh, a point a point at, towards Friday the Thirteenth being some kind of American gialli expression. I think like, so uh, broadly speaking, the American cultural attitude towards sex is bound inexorably into a whole bunch of weird cultural neuroses and hangovers from puritanical religious thought. You know, like we, we have much more cloistered attitudes towards sex in certain respects, not in others, than like, you know, our European forebears. And I think that that does come across very strongly in Friday the Thirteenth. This movie is incredibly neurotic about sex.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Neurotic
0: here in Freudian terms. Yeah,
1: it's it's very weird. It's very weird about its sex. But actually, when you actually get into the granular details of it, um, it puts forward a model of sex which is entirely in keeping with that Purita- puritanical repressive idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. So sex, sex is this
0: ever-present boogeyman that's soaked into everything, but can never be engaged with or acknowledged. Everything is libidinal and disgusting. You just have to keep turning away from it, right? This very puritanical viewpoint.
1: Well, actually, I think we can go even further with this, and and maybe this is a bit this is a bit discursive, but it's like who is sexually agential in these films or in this film particularly? Um, oh yeah, is generally uh, the women. They're the ones who mm-hmm. who are actually like, no, let's bang, let's let's fuck, uh, and all of the all of these men who are like deeply kind of afraid of this like quite clearly they were like "Uh, i don't know about that i'm like happy to you know check you out when you know and steal your clothes and do all of these schoolboy pranks but like actual genuine engagement with like sexual desire and sexual pleasure is something that they all seem like kind of like not all that keen on it's it's with sorry go on. oh go on go on i was gonna say there are a couple of exceptions there are a couple of important exceptions um i was i was that's all i was just gonna say is
0: with one extremely important exception and that's the gay man yes uh uh, tim tim mcbride yes (laughs) who plays mark which we have a whole section about mark on our notes and it's probably going to be like the longest section on the show so
1: just wait (laughs) we're getting there uh yeah uh, is there anything else you wanna you wanna pick up on on a on a kind of formal level? Um, the only
0: I'm sorry, Tom McBride. Uh, my bad. the The only thing that I wanted to add to this is that um, I really like the score because it's like a classic string orchestral score, mm-hmm. and I think that that does give the Friday the Thirteenth film this Friday the Thirteenth film a little bit more of an eerie presence right like it's it's got it's got that like little piece of sinew connecting it back to an older tradition in horror when it could have easily just been ripping off carpenter more strongly bringing in the synth element even even though the synth element is muted in halloween it's you know but then again we're talking about like the late 70s this is the early days of synth music starting to become popular and and get outside of the experimental weird bubble but i do like it
1: uh yeah it's um uh composed by um harry manfredi who did all of the friday the 13th films and was Mm. a kind of legendary is a sort of legendary jazz soloist um but yeah i i couldn't agree more i think the score's great yeah friday the 13th is like jazz it's about the kills
0: you don't see (laughs) boom and speaking of kills you don't see we should touch on the fact that this movie is heavily edited and you feel it while watching it all of the kills are truncated. Everything is really short and abrupt. The movie suffers
1: for it. Yeah, I mean, there were big problems with getting the X certificate. Um, there's there's quite a lot of deleted scenes um, or cut scenes or footage that was then found in later versions and was restored, uh, depending on what version you, you, you have, especially if you buy physical media. Um, of course, some of it um, was cut for good reason. Uh, because it featured uh, Marta Kober yes. who plays Sandra mm. she was under the she was 16 um, and there's some full front frontal nudity which was cut out um, so it feels yeah it feels very truncated it's very short if you take out its opening sequence it's like an hour um, and yeah, so editing on the macro level feels quite disjointed but on the micro level on those those kind of like Uh, the the kind of breaths of a film where you establish tension you you give spatial awareness give the audience a chance to kind of cognitively map and insert themselves into the space all of that doesn't really work uh a lot of the movement again lots of jason's movement feels very weird mostly because the film has been very obviously chopped Mm -hmm. oh yeah and speaking of micro-level,
0: you can make a micro-level payment and support our podcast on patreon.com horrorvanguard. We all get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and once we reach 5 million Patreon subscribers, I'm going to mail each of you a signed burlap mask. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to work at Haunted Attractions, one of the things I would do would be make spooky burlap masks for everyone who needed one. So I can do this. Uh, just like I said, 5 million, everyone gets a burlap mask. They think about this as like one of those like school drives where you had to like get your con your relatives into buying chocolates. Yeah. Call up, <laughs> ca- call up your grandma and be like, hey, grandma, I need you to sign up to the horrorvanguard.com Patreon.
1: Like that way my school can send me a burlap mask. Yeah. Signing up to the Patreon is basically like it's the podcasting equivalent of buying the Girl Scout cookies. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Except for this, and this time the the
0: Girl Scout cookies are heavily theoretical takes on bad horror cinema, which, I mean, like, do they taste better than Thin Mints? No. Are they close? Definitely. Uh, I mean, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash Horror Vanguard, your source for theoretical audio spooky Thin Mints. Thank you, everyone. On to the discourse. Oh, dear. <laughs> onto the discourse on that note let's talk about how friday the 13th part two treats issues of disability yes um where would you like to kind of begin with this um so i want to talk i want to talk about mark our character in friday the 13th who uses a wheelchair as a mobility aid mark uh the actor that played mark was an openly gay man who died in 1995 of aids um, there is a documentary about his life. It's a short film. I think it's only like 45 minutes um, called life and death on the A-list. Um, talking about his kind of like final hours as uh, AIDS took his life um, in the mid nineties. Uh, what I find really interesting about his character is that. So, so what, we, what we were talking about earlier that it's like, oh, on Friday the 13th, it's the women who are very sexually agential. And a lot of the men are kind of like, and eh, they're a little bit squeamish. Um for, for a lot of characters, um, including Jason Voorhees himself, this reads as this kind of like impotence bound up within their their patriarchal urges. And I think with Mark's character, like the read is is completely opposite. Mark's anxiety about, you know, having sex with this beautiful young woman like stem visibly stems from his disability. His uncertainty is coming from that point, right? And like on top of that, there is like a rich literary tradition of actors and characters using disability as synecdoche for either queerness itself or AIDS in general, and Mark just happens to Mark played by Tom McBride just happens to fit perfectly into that tradition.
1: Yeah, So I mean, here's it's what, here's an it, actor it's with connects, a disability. Um, I just wanted to add, you know, it's it's what connects Friday yeah. the Thirteenth Part uh, Two with um, D.H. Lawrence and Lady Chatterley's oh. Lover. Mm-hmm. And I think I I I I couldn't agree more. I think it's I think it's I think it's actually um, a really important point to emphasize, um, and ties into some of the bigger points around gender and sexuality that I think this film does also bring up.
0: Oh, abso- absolutely, and we are going to ten ten million percent dig into that. <laughs> How can we talk about a Friday the Thirteenth movie without like? Just just absolutely falling down into the gravity well of, of like, gender and sex discourse. But um, I really, uh, there's, like, another uh, disability angle, right, that, that I think we should touch on, and that's Jason Voorhees himself. hmm Yeah. So J- Jason Voorhees is disabled, disformed, and uh, based on the body of lore that we will discuss in further uh, Friday the 13th films, has some kind of developmental disability, just very open ended in this franchise um and that that's really the only reason we're ever given for for he's his killing sprees right he's he is a slasher he is a slasher killer because he's encoded into like these systems of psychic illness and physical disease and deformity that follow this kind of patriarchal colonial uh, medicalized norm right like this is why he's sick is because, this is why he's a killer because he's insane and physically disformed is why he has his super strength or whatever right we're, yeah. we're dealing with these kind of like really ableist really uncomfortable norms that stem from systems designed to support these
1: wider broader social oppressions yeah i mean this is why this is why of all of the um kind of golden age of slashers it's friday the 13th that people reach to you in order to demonstrate its their essentially kind of conservative politics.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I here's my here's my here's my here's a hot take. We have uncovered hot take number 1 for me from this episode. I think Jason Voorhees's character uh demonstrates a, an incredibly useful departure from Carol Clover's Men, Women and Chainsaws and the readings therein. Uh so the the classic Carol Clover reading of Jason would suggest that Uh, you know, why, why is you know, Jason's violence is an echo of patriarchal violence, which is true, right? Um, I'm not negating Clover here. Just like I said in the precy, we can, we can remix, we can, we can adapt, we can grow. Um, what I want to suggest is that it's one of the things that puzzled Carol Clover in Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And one of the things that was like a central discursive item in the book was like, why do we cheer for slasher killers? Why are we on Jason's side and not Mark? And not all these other like young adults who are killed at the camp counselor training school, you know, like why why are we why are we on his team broadly speaking if we we're to be on anyone's team, you know? And then like you know we, further, this is after the context of men, women, and chainsaws, but like why do we only take Lori Strode's side when she starts to like pick up the knife herself and become part of the same system? I think I think we can posit that like J- Jason Voorhees in and of himself, has this kind of boiled over impotent rage, right? He's got this, like, necessarily, this necessary psychoanalytic backlash inside of him, right? Like, he is extremely alienated. He's extremely isolated. He's underserved by every possible, like, quote-unquote safety net, right? Like, there is nothing there to catch him. Everything has abandoned him. And so he's got nothing left but, like, this stew pot of his own anxieties and frustrations and angers. And then they explode, they explode in these random bursts of violence that, that he births out into the world, right? And owing to his specific character, like the one thing he's you know, like he's really tragic in a lot of ways. He like he's just looking for his mom through all these movies. Like he just he just needs to find his mom again because he's forever locked in a moment where she was the only thing that like gave him sucker. And I think this this creates a deep, uncomfortable proximity between everyone and Jason Voorhees. Because we've all, at some point in our lives, felt that flare of totally impotent, just just violent rage, you know. They usually, usually, they burn off as quickly as they rise up, and very few people become Jason Voorhees. But like, like that kind of emotion, that kind of anxiety, that kind of isolated pressure cooker of feeling, I think there's there's a common thread that runs through this, right? Whether or not you have like Jason Voorhees' physical disabilities, psychic disabilities right? Extreme poverty, you know, like we're all kind of like touching on certain aspects of that that bring us a little too close to something this horrific.
1: I think, I think that's, that's very, um, self, like almost self-evidently true. But I think, I think in a way you are, um, there's a kind of much more foundational reason or not, not a more foundational reason, but another, another way of thinking about it, which is that, Jason is like the people who are watching it, a teenager. <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. wh- I I completely agree that like all of that is true on a kind of societal level, and the uh, and the 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 forces and the structural forces which produce social antagonisms, right, and 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 social burdens, but like these films were deliberately made and marketed to teenagers, gen- generally speaking. Uh, the second one is very, very clear about that. What they wanted was they wanted to pack in the teenagers on Saturday night of the Halloween weekend, um, and it's like Jason's a teenager. Like the violence is the violence is uh, exactly that. It's it's born out of why do we cheer? Because it appeals to the the kind of teenage voice that wants not to kind of remake the world but to destroy it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, and I think that it transcends its context too, right? This
0: movie's, you know, like wasn't just popular with a teenage audience. It's also incredibly popular with adults, and the franchise has gone on to be incredibly popular with adults, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like there, there is no kind of like aging out of that anguish and that anger, right? Like no, that, no, no, that no, fire totally doesn't extinguish over time.
1: Totally, but it's like, um, yeah, I think Jason appeals because you know. Jason is is like us full of those full of the resentment and like the empty shape that we can project all of these kind of like uh both real and imagined alienations and and kind of uh, injustices onto
0: yeah and, and I just i would I would like to contrast it with like because that same kind of empty shell exists in a lot of zombie cinema and, and I think the difference I would like to draw here is that in zombie cinema it's like the the impetus behind a lot of zombie fiction has become. Oh, if I had power, it wouldn't be this way. You know, if if it if it was if it was some strong man in power who was broadly aligned with my goals, things would be different and we can exterminate the undesirables, etc. and so forth. There's this fascistic impulse to power. But I think in, in Jason Voorhees and the figure of the slasher, it's coming from this kind of subaltern space. You know, like Jason, Jason Voorhees' power is, is is lowercase P power, right? it's it's impotent rage boiled over you know it's not the kind of institutionalized violence that we see elsewhere although that does still play out along gendered lines
1: Mm -hmm. and interestingly like a huge amount of zombie media is about going oh really there's a consciousness right there's consciousness Mm -hmm. here that we have to um which is the ground on which you can kind of like start to build a slightly more leftist understanding of the zombie um What's interesting is, in the Friday the 13th films, it's all about the kind of distilling and minimizing of consciousness. Yeah. Right? Jason, like, Jason doesn't talk or feel or think. Jason has no agency, just wants things, right? Jason is kind of, almost kind of like pure id right that's that's I, that's the, i literally wrote that exact phrase down in my notes like <laughs> that's, pure id that's the appeal that's the, that's why we cheer it's because like it's the liberation of the id
0: exactly like even even if you've only we've all felt totally voiceless and completely stripped of humanity even if it's only been in trite you know meaningless phasing contexts right like, even if it's only been a frustrating encounter at the DMV, like, there is a trickle of that. Some people, unfortunately, and this should be fixed on a societal level, experience that their entire lives. You know, and, like, that is is what I'm arguing is this connective tissue that Carol Clover sought to look for into Jason Voorhees, right? It's the fact that we've all got at least, you know, at the very least a toe in some oppressive structures, even if we don't necessarily feel it, right? Like, there are the connective threads taking us back to Voorhees, and yeah. many other slashers
1: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely
0: so i know you wanted to talk about jason for he's in the collapse of history
1: well I, th- I kind of feel like we've touched upon this a little bit which is basically the kind of point i was trying to make is that jason becomes this sort of nothing um and this gets impacted like isn't it is it so funny that they go it was five years ago and it's like that's really not that long <laughs> <laughs> right that's that's not a long time, <laughs> but like Jason has already become myth it has been kind of completely desubjectified de subjective desubjectivized right Jason has no subjectivity, even though it's only been five years. Jason has become this kind of like uh object of discourse rather than an actual like person um and that happens so quickly.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good exploration of the speed of media too, because this this was happening in a pre-digital space, a pre-internet space. And now something could have happened to last week and it feels like it happened years ago or lifetimes ago. It feels inaccessibly distant, unless you are immediately physically tethered into whatever context it's born out of.
1: Yeah, completely, completely. Um, and I think that's that's about the kind of reproduction of narrative and the way in which the various technologies that structure that narrative um, necessarily have an impact on time. Um, but yeah, it. I just think it's such a strange thing that like Jason is just this uh, sort of narrative device, really, <laughs> in, in this. <laughs> and again, it's like five years ago. That wasn't that long ago. <laughs> right, and I think that's
0: like, it's like so... So, so the guy who's running the camp counselor training school in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, and again, this is five years ago, right? So, like, think about what you were doing in your life five years ago, and imagine if one of those things was like, uh, uh someone's mom went off into the woods and killed an entire camp full of teenagers in your hometown or something like that. that would that would still like, you know, like we we've all lived in places that have the lingering ghosts of kind of these horrible town incidents, right? These, these things that like the community doesn't come together to lift and that linger and haunt and stay. And like, you know, and again, can even contrast us with how Halloween, like how long does the Myers house remain abandoned? You know, it's not until what the sixth movie that someone moves back into the old Myers home Mm -hmm. fifth or sixth. it's in the thorn trilogy.
1: Uh, yes. And here, like it's the sixth. it's,
0: It's literally five years later and there's this like flippant, arrogant young man running the thing. And the sheriff is like, please don't like I don't want to agree with the sheriff here. That pains me a little bit, but he's very reasonable. And he's like, please don't let your kids swim in the lake. We closed off because a bunch of grisly murders happened there five years ago. And the town feels kind of uncomfortable with it. And, he, and he's and he's just like giving the sheriff so much attitude. It's like, <laughs> like,
1: you can't tell me what to do.
0: Yeah, and, and and the sheriff is like, Well, aren't you gonna at least like punish these uh, these like young adults you're training to become counselors? And he's like, Yes, yes, yes. Uh no seconds on dessert tonight. He's like <laughs> responding to them as if he's like 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 I don't know, like that's the kind of response I'd expect of like Cruella Deville or something. <laughs> like so, he's so it's stuck so, with It's his so equal. funny.
1: It's so funny where like not only not only do they have like zero empathy for the town they actively treat the town basically with complete contempt <laughs> where right Where it's like the the sheriff who um who ends up uh running through the woods uh is a sort of like bumbling figure that they're just like oh look at this loser trying to tell us that we shouldn't get ourselves killed <laughs> and part of that does fit into kind of
0: like this, like, li- li- libidinal, or, like, how the movie is depicting a kind of, like, libidinized teenage psyche. And part of this is kind of reasonable, too. Like, I think when when I was 15, five years ago was an eternity. That was a third of my life. You know, the difference of me between 10 and 15 is, is the space of worlds, right? That's true of everyone between 10 and 15. You know, you, you literally blossom into an entirely different person over those years. And so, like, it's reasonable for these kids to be so distant from these historic events. And when I say kids, I mean, like, the people in the camp counselor training program, these nebulous old teens, young adults. But the guy running the program? Yeah, you like, come like, on. And there's a line from the sheriff, too, where he's like, oh, everybody in the town really loves what you're doing for these kids. We think your program is really nice. But please be respectful. And he's like... <laughs> It's it's either a failure of script writing. They should they should have either written him to be more like much more cruel, much meaner like, I'm gonna shut you down if you don't get those kids back in line. You scum shouldn't be in our town. You know, like they either should have made the sheriff that aggressive with it, or or maybe they shouldn't have made like the leader of of the camp counselor team such a
1: jerk. <laughs> but again, it's like pure id, right? Pure pure delocalized id is 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 the affective kind of like vibe of this entire film <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that works coming and going too because if you key into the sheriff like you're feeling the same thing because he has like you know like like the the, the town like the, the kids are pointing to something that is correct and that the town has failed to properly address what happened there five years ago right they've chosen to kind of like seal off the area to quarantine it right as if that would somehow allow them to heal rather than fostering this kind of like increasingly unknown space which is what bred the violence in the first place
1: yeah exactly um and it, it again there seems to be, and there seems to be this almost like compulsive desire to like both seal away and and repress and then re-excavate. you know you you go oh stay out but the chain link fence is always super rusty uh you can always just hop <laughs> over it and the whole thing will happen again
0: yeah yeah uh, you kids stay out of there however uh the city fathers have agreed that you are absolutely allowed to reopen your counselor training center in the haunted murder forest that we don't let anyone go in please don't go in the forest <laughs> it's it's just kind of like it's this bizarre double bind that is adulthood right like you have to do all of these things that are necessarily mutually exclusive of each other especially now in 2023 as economic conditions worsen yeah absolutely absolutely we have to we have to stay out of the psychic murder forest of our mind while also trying to earn a living in the psychic murder forest of the world yeah you know it's you know it's bad
1: but we're still gonna keep doing it because what else is there (laughs) It's like it's the only lake. It's the only lake for <laughs> six hundred miles. Are you? What are you going to do? Not have a summer camp?
0: <laughs> oh my god! So okay, let's 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 start rounding out our discussion here by talking about one of the things Friday the Thirteenth is most known for, and that's I'll say
1: it's libidinal economies, uh, or as or as I call this in the notes, horny cinema. actually i think i think i should definitely shout out um rs benedict's excellent and multiple viral uh, like essay which goes viral every so often um everyone is beautiful and no one is horny um about the Mm -hmm. kind of delibidized um kind of sexual politics of contemporary hollywood um and this is a really good example of like a, a deeply horny film but in in again in a very kind of id based way um and again i think it's very noticeable that all of our uh lots of our male characters are kind of both simultaneously kind of like almost incoherently attracted to all of the female characters and at the same time kind of terrified at the idea of sex
0: oh I, I, absolutely right like and and of course like this this does speak to like classic carol clover points right like this is this is the double bind of like patrocentristic values right
1: yeah i was like these these women have to watching it i was like wow you can barely tell that this film was designed to attract an audience of horny teenage boys (laughs) (laughs) right yeah
0: like like the women must simultaneously be these kind of like chaste nurse mothers while also being like ready to go for whatever whenever
1: uh yeah absolutely absolutely and it's like this this reaches its its high point um we we have to talk about Ginny yes let's do it so Ginny is our kind of main character our the, the final girl um and there's a really interesting moment where they all decide to go out to a bar or some of them decide to go out to a bar and Ginny gets quite sort of reflective about the kind of myth of Jason and sort of Vo- vocalizes this idea that you know he grew up in the woods without his mother. That's all he wants. He probably doesn't know or hasn't never been taught the difference between right and wrong, and and that that it's wrong to uh, viciously murder teenagers with an axe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and the two guys that she, she's with are just like, yeah, whatever, another beer, please. Um, but it's like that's that's exactly the moral message of the film that. It's what are your thoughts about that scene in the bar
0: firstly? So I I, th- I think I think this is all really interesting right because like this is our first appearance of Jason Voorhees discounting the dream sequence in the first movie. Right like because we got we get that sequence at the end and we're not meant to know if that really happened or not. Right? Or at least that's always been my reading of the initial Friday the 13th is kind of like Jason bursting up beneath the canoe. And dragging our our
1: uh, you know our, our final girl into yeah, the depths. I I think I I think there was some fighting at the time about that final scene. I think the director or director or the writer I can't remember. Um, one of them felt that like it was it was too much of like a gag, right? It was it was a kind of cheap joke yeah. at the end mm-hmm. that kind of undercut the message of the film,
0: right? And like even at the start of this movie, like I don't think the start of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two tries to cement that as a thing that really happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, like it, it just continues the kind of dream logic that we're dealing with like you know, even before Freddy, before Freddy is a glint in Craven's eye, we have we have like this kind of dream demon in the figure of Jason Voorhees. And I think like it, this kind of connects it to to the what's going on in the bar, right? And this kind of like goes back to what I was saying, like the connective tissue we all have to Jason Voorhees, right? Because Ginny, Ginny is just like, that's not even that's not even subtext. Ginny is like, damn, it's a shame that Jason Jason Voorhees couldn't have like a well supported upbringing by the society in which he finds himself. I wonder if that is somehow in part responsible for the horrible things that have happened in this community. And then of course the two guys are like, Bleh. <laughs> they have like nothing, <laughs> nothing to say but razzing the locals. Um who apparently begrudgingly like them for reasons unknown to us, um even though they're all partying down at the fucking like mass grave site in
1: the town. <laughs> and then we get we get to like honestly, a, a moment in the film that I genuinely couldn't believe was real <laughs> until I first watched it., um, which is that the Ginny finds the kind of shrine that Jason has built to his, you know, uh, in memory of, of, of his, of his mother of, uh, Mm -hmm. and she ends up putting on Mrs. Voorhees jumper and trying to kind of like psychologically project that she is his mummy. Right. Uh, And as, as I said, I sent you a message, which is like, Jason Voorhees wants a dummy mummy. Like uh, like she, (laughs) she, she, She literally at one point says, you've got, you've got to kneel in front of mummy like a very good boy. Uh, and I'm just sort Mm -hmm. of like, hang on. (laughs) Is there any subtext here? I I don't know if there's any subtext No, no, it's just text.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Giles meme. The the Giles meme, proven correct time and time again. Yeah. (laughs) I know writers who
1: use subtext and they're all cowards. (laughs) what do what are your thoughts on on this moment of like psychic oedipal fetishism so i i have i have something that might
0: be again like like i don't know why this friday the 13th part 2 became hot take city for me i'm not usually too much of a hot take critic but i i kind of think it's not pamela Voorhees kind of stops mattering in an interesting way after the after she dies at the end of Friday the 13th part 1 right and i think because we have a debate intra the text of Friday the 13th and that's whether or not Pamela Voorhees exists as some kind of supernatural phenomenon after her death right because Jason continues to see and hear her speaking to him throughout all of these movies essentially essentially every movie at some point a disembodied Pamela Voorhees is like, be a good little boy and go murder those campers. Um, But we we never really know for sure if that's something internal to Jason, but I actually think we do. And we see in this movie, we see in Freddy versus Jason, we kind of see time and time again in the franchise that like the Pamela Voorhees is, is an internal phenomenon. It's something that Jason is struggling with psychically intra himself. And again, like, and I think there's a lot here that kind of like, fights against what, what I would otherwise kind of give into as like an Oedipal complex psychoanalytic reading, these broader social relationships between the masculine and the maternal. Like, uh, so Jason Voorhees has no dad, right? And the comics they introduce, like, I think it's Elias Voorhees or something, but whatever, that's the comics. We, we don't read. We're a movie show. I know comics are pictures and only kind of reading, but like (laughs) make a movie. We'll talk about it later. When we get the Elias Voorhees spin off film, then we'll consider JC to have had patronage. I
1: can't believe I wasted my time reading Friday the 13th, part two, the novelization. It- <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, I know. Did you know there was a movie? <laughs> I can't
1: believe that. I can't believe that Simon Hawke's Friday the 13th, part two, a novel. Like I feel like I've wasted my time <laughs> oh
0: there's there's another world where you and I leaned into the literature part of our graduate school training to do like novel novel adaptions of popular horror cinema <laughs> what a what a stranger world that would be, but no, the kind of point that I'm working to here is that like. We function on kind of this absence of information when we attempt to diagnose Jason Voorhees with this edible complex, right? And blind too heavily on the edible complex as like a shorthand for understanding his character, I think, cut like narrows down the kind of pathways with which we can like explore the understanding of Jason Voorhees, right? Like it it kind of forces us into this position of reifying these kind of like, larger social attitudes of like, Oh, Jason Voorhees is mentally ill and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Except this case, the mental illness is like this Freudian psychoanalytic, very dated Oedipal complex thing. When we could like, you know, like look, 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 through, look him in the eyes through the little burlap holes in his mask before someone, before he gets like the charity bin hockey mask in the next movie. And like, Kind of see where his character comes from. Look at the background. Look at why he would have this attachment to his mother rather than any other appropriate attachment in the world, right? We never get the inkling that he wants to fuck Pamela Voorhees, right? Like, we never get the inkling that he wants to to replace his father because he failed to develop as a child. All we know about his character is that he had the world's most unfortunate upbringing, and and as like a lone, lone child raised by the cruelty of the freezing woods or something. <laughs> and so I'm I, I'm arguing here for a bizarre empathy towards Jason as a way to expand our understanding of his character beyond kind of like these these, I think, very naturalistic and given readings.
1: I mean, I, I actually completely agree with you. And I think that's I think that's completely that is completely in line with. Um and like so so what what does what is the does the ED complex represent Red literally I completely agree with you it doesn't really apply but what it represents is a kind of oh why is it that I I always end up talking about Lacan and why is it that I always end up talking about psychoanalysis on the on the show <laughs> uh I'm not a psychoanalyst <laughs> like, but it's like what it represents is the kind of the the kind of the, the 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 ultimate expression of the barred subject, right? In order to become a subject, there is something that happens to us that kind of separates us out from from the kind of most profound human connections, right? Which again, in the Freudian to- topology, is uh, with the mother, right? But mm-hmm. I actually agree with you. I actually I do completely agree with you, and I think reading it not not in a kind of reductionist sense of of the oedipal like nudge nudge wink wink way but actually as a recognition of the basic human condition is to exist separated from that which we used to be a part of is a sort of psychoanalytical like struggle that we have to overcome in order to self-actualize Jason's kind of mistake, as it were, is to believe that one can become a subject as long as you stab enough people in the throat, right?
0: (laughs) And I think, I mean, I I think I would draw from, like, Presadio's Can the Monster Speak here and suggest that we need to, like, jettison the Lacanian altogether, almost, right? Because, like, even Lacan, like, Lacan believed in a discrete, fundamentally biologically given gender binary, there were men and there were women and there is nothing else in the Lacanian psychoanalytic context that isn't pathologized. Everything like, like that is why Jason would be pathologized because he is existing at some degree outside of that context, right? He is never fully actualized as a man and therefore he is disease. And I think like, like that, that again, like we're, we're kind of like taking the stance towards Jason rather than like, I don't know, humbling ourselves as people who are like, doing doing what everyone does with psychoanalytic theory and that's making it useful by applying it to literature. <laughs> Zing, shots fired, shots fired to the grave
1: Lacan. Yeah, um, I mean but, like, but I think that the like oh, go on, but go go like on. I say I think it's like this is the ground of a of not not a pathologizing but gener- generally of a recognition, right? A recognition of um the the ultimate shared human condition which is the struggle to become Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I,
0: I, I So that that is something that I would agree with. Right. That, 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 that there is a fundamental shared human condition. And part of that is becoming. Right. Like, but what I would push up against a little bit is that the idea of becoming has any fixity to it. And so we're in this like much, much, much slipperier space, this less discrete space. Than I think the yeah, kind of I mean, like Lacanian I mean, frameworks I, I mean, would give us, like
1: like Jason Jason goes to hell, uh to to space, right? Right? <laughs> there is no, there is no, there is no, there is no real teleology, right? There is no destination. This isn't about ends, right? But the becoming is. Friday the Thirteenth is, is, is about the journey.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not the destination. It's the journey. That's that's what Friday the Thirteenth is all about. It's about taking a road trip to hell and outer space with your darkest psychological maladaptions. <laughs> perfect. P- perfect. <laughs> so, okay. Do, do you have any, do you have any, I know, I know we've like tossed, tossed the psychoanalytic ball back and forth here at the end, but do you have any closing Friday the 13th takes?
1: Um. <sighs> It's uh, we're back here again. We'll be back here again before you know it. <laughs> I think okay. Let me let me look up really quickly. I don't know when the next Friday the
0: thirteenth calendar. I don't know how am I supposed to find months and years having Friday the thirteenth at timeanddate.com dot com. We are done with twenty twenty three. Ghouls of the audience. I hope you're ready for Friday the 13th, part three, September, 2024.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll be back here again. And we'll, we'll always be at Camp Crystal Lake. We'll always like, this is, this is the great circularity of, of, of our kind of like internal landscape. It isn't really, a. it doesn't really have geography. It's a stage upon which, we will restage and reenact and re-explore. Um we'll we'll go to hell, we'll do the same thing. We'll go to the very worst place in all the cosmos, Manhattan, and do the same thing. <laughs> we will go into space and yet we will always end up back on the on the on the promontory of the id, the shores of consciousness that is Camp Crystal Lake.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.